This morning's scripture reading is taken from James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. In this text, James tells his readers that true faith forbids showing favoritism of any kind. Instead, true faith welcomes others just as Christ has welcomed us. And in doing so, it fulfills the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Hear now the word of the Lord from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. A poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. You have, dis have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you, are, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment, with, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's begin our time with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we need you so much. Lord, this text is um, in some ways simple and yet so um, elusive. Father, it reveals our hearts and we cry out for your Holy Spirit to lead us. Uh, Father, to um, remind us afresh. Father, overwhelm us this morning with the riches, the, the, the astonishingly scandalous nature of your welcome. Lord Jesus, would you be present? Would you uh, give me strength and humility to communicate, Father, in a way that is pleasing to you, uh, the beauty, um, the importance, the gravity of this passage, uh, Lord, and open our hearts to receive it. Would you write your word in the hearts of your people? For the word that may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Lord, this morning, as we're making our path through James, uh, the book of James, we, um, we're transitioning around a pivot point in the book. In the first chapter, James is about faith and how faith relates to trials. It's about the idea that, that it's actually in trials that our faith is shown to work. It actually works. 
that faith, Christian faith, true, real Christian faith is not some form of escapism, that when trials happen, you just sort of, you, you, it's a way of escaping from those trials. But actually, Christian faith, it's in the midst of those trials that faith is proven. It's shown to be real. It's shown to be something that is incredibly useful. And this morning, as we turn in chapter 2, we transition from this idea that James, where James is talking about faith in the midst of trials to something where he turns to look at faith itself and actually, in a sense, puts our faith on trial. In fact, throughout this, this chapter and in, in, in other parts of the book, we're going to see how, how James forces us to wrestle with the reality of our faith. Is it, a, is it a faith that is fake or a faith that is for real? And this morning, he, he confronts us with, a, with a, a, that's one dimension or one implication of our faith, a faith that speaks of the idea of, uh, that, that addresses the idea of favoritism. And I don't know about you, about you kids, I, I, I love animated films. And, and those of you who are kids, I want, what I want you to do is I want you to, so I'm going I'm to read the very beginning of a story. It's actually a movie, it's a Disney movie, but I'm going to read the beginning, and I want, to, I want you to raise your hand as soon as you can tell me what movie or what story it is. So just raise your hand, and I'm going to read it, and as soon as you got it, just, just, just to raise your hand. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, you know you got this already? Wow, I'm impressed. Wow. Man, once upon a time, in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Anyone yet? Well, Winston, maybe? Okay, hold on. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. Oh, we've got a young, two over here. Okay. Then one very cold winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered the prince a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. We got a hand up here, Lucy. Got, okay, we have a number of hands now. I think we're almost there. Okay, Michelle, <laughs> excellent. All right, okay. Well, let me continue to read the story here. Repulsed by her haggard and ugly appearance, the prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. But she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty, she said, is found within. And when, she, and when he dismissed her a second time, the old woman's ugliness suddenly melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late. For she had seen that there was no love in his heart. And as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast. <laughs> it's, quite the, uh, it's quite the punishment and placed a powerful spell on the entire castle. And all who lived there, ashamed of his monstrous form, the beast concealed himself inside his castle. The rose she had offered truly was an enchanted rose, which would bloom until his 21st year, you know, drinking, uh, if he could learn to love another and earn her love in return by the time the last petal fell, then the spell would be broken. If not, he would be doomed to remain a beast for all time. But as the years passed, he fell into despair and lost all hope for who could ever learn to love a beast? It's a great question. You guys know the story? What story is it? The Beauty and the 
That's right, Beauty and the Beast, right? Now, think about that. What would it, no, you kids, think about this. What would it feel like to be that old beggar woman? What would it feel like to have a prince who has this nice castle and may all the warmth and such a cold night and she's seeking refuge, she's seeking. What would it feel like to be judged by your appearance? Do you remember how she warns him? She even says, not to be deceived by appearances. We live in a world that plays favorites based on our faces. Now, kids, don't lose me. This is really important. What this prince did is something that you and I do all the time, that we play favorites based on others' faces. Let me tell you something, kids. It's really, actually, I'm really, I'm really ashamed of. But when I was a kid, I did not like old people. Isn't that terrible? It's awful. They smelled. They were wrinkly. They, they, sometimes they said weird things. They didn't get it. They were sort of out of touch, out of date. Yeah, I just didn't, just didn't like to be around old people. It's terrible. I, I thought, you know, they just, you know, what did, what did they know, right? What did they have to offer? And I would judge them based on their appearances. In fact, as a young man, I, was, I went into the military, and I was stationed in Florida, and I was at a church, and uh, the church decided that I should, as a young man, I should be a deacon, which was questionable. But I became a deacon, and I thought, oh, cool, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to serve the poor, or I'm going to help, you know, people in distress or whatever. And they, they said to me, they said, hey, we want you to be, again, this is Florida, so it's a retirement community. They said, we want you to be the deacon who cares for all the widows in the church. And I was like, what? I mean, I didn't say that, of course, because that's not what you do in church. You pretend, you go, oh, that sounds great, and you smile, right? <laughs> oh, so wonderful. Oh, great, the widows. I thought inside, really, the widows? That's terrible. But you know what was amazing through that experience as a deacon? As I visited the widows in the church, they ministered to me in an amazing way. I found in them a faith and a wisdom and a courage that they ministered, not surprisingly, they ministered to me far more than I ministered to them. See, here's the thing. You and I, all of us, and again, myself especially, you and I, listen to this phrase, and we remember this, you and I can be kings and queens of the infallible first impression. We are so quick to size people up and make an assessment. We judge people, we play favorites according to people's faces, to their looks. We evaluate so fast. And the consequences of that are just devastating. Not only for others, but for ourselves, because we are so, when we do that, we size people right away like that. When we are like that prince, when we see this old beggar woman, we think, ugh. When we do that, we miss out in huge ways. Huge ways. And we end up alone. I tell you what, you know, this is, this is as, a minister, as one who ministered to 20-somethings for about three years, this was something that was a chronic failure that we struggle with as a community. Because what would happen is you have a bunch of mostly single persons, and these singles, they would come in, and they, they would, what would they do? They'd size each other up like that. 
immediately. And they'd say, ah, I'm looking for the Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, and guess what? They're not here. I can tell that by after about five seconds. That's how quickly they would evaluate and size one another up and say, oh, well, this is who they are. And it was like pulling teeth to actually get them to know each other. Again, we are, the, we are kings and queens of the infallible first impression. But in the family of God, and this is what James wants to tell us, in the family of God, it's to be incredibly different. Look in verses, verse 1 and verse 5. Both in verse 1, this is typical. In fact, like 19 times in five chapters, James is going to address God's people as what? My brothers and sisters. Adolfoi, my brothers and sisters. He addresses them as family. Again, not family according to blood, but family according to the blood of Christ. That there are there's one father and we are a family. And he says, in this family, again, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, this language of family says that in this community, we are to be different, that we, in fact, are not to, to play favorites. And what's so interesting about this particular passage is that true faith True faith, this is the first point, true faith forbids any form of favoritism. It forbids favoritism. We see that there again in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Really, literally the Greek word there is, was not receive faces. We don't play favorites according to faces. Why is that? Well, it says it's because of who our faith is in. The NIV translates it, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean, our glorious? Here, the word glorious refers to the idea of honor, to fame, of, of notoriety. And, and, and James is saying there's a particular kind of glory, a particular kind of fame that our Lord Jesus Christ had. And that the nature of that glory, the nature of that fame forbids that we would play favorites. Well, what, what, was, what was Jesus famous for? We looked at the Gospels, and of course, James, the brother of Jesus. What was, what was Jesus famous for? Well, he was famous for being a friend of all the wrong people. In fact, just really quick, let's turn to Luke chapter 7. If you've got your Bible there, Luke chapter 7. If I remember right here, it's on page 887 of your pew Bible. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 chapter 7, verse 36, we just see this story. This is a story where Jesus, in which Jesus has been invited by a religious leader into, to, to eat with him. So the first thing that we learn is that Jesus is a friend of, of persons like this man, um, Simon. Now, Simon, again, he's, he's, a, he's a, a rule follower. He's anal. He is a tattletale. He's a rule follower. He's a goody two-shoes. And for some of you, you're like, ah, it's not, it's a good, it's not a bad thing. Others of you are like, I don't like tattletales. I don't like goody two-shoes. Who wants to hang out with them? Jesus does. Jesus actually does like to hang out with people who are anal. People who are just, you know, know-it-all. People who are self-righteous. So Jesus hangs out, first and foremost, he's a friend of tattletales, of, ta- of, of people who just are, are, are legalistic, if you will, to use a big word. So Jesus is, is famous for being friends with someone like Simon the Pharisee. But not only that, as the story goes on here, what happens is they're at the, they're at the house in verse 37, a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life, 
learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at, at, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now just think about that for a minute. This woman was so confident that Jesus would not be ashamed of her, that she felt a confidence, a freedom to walk into this house and offer a public display to associate. She knew that Jesus would not be ashamed of her. So here's Jesus talking to, invited into the house of a rule follower, into the house of a tattletale. She, this troublemaker, this woman of sin, this woman, as, you, as sadly as we used to say, this woman with a past. See, this is someone who's incredibly, here's on the one hand, a legalistic person. On the other hand, a licentious person. But what's so amazing about this, about the story here, and then the interaction between these two persons here, as, G, as the Pharisee in verse 39 says, he observes the woman and he questions Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says here in verse 40. Well, he, he goes and he tells the story of a parable, and so it's a very beautiful, simple parable, very, important, very, very relevant for our, our, our text this morning, verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave both the debts, the, the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose, the one who had the bigger debt, the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Now look at verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, that's just, now don't pass over that phrase. He's saying, Simon, whom, do you, do you, is she even visible to you? I mean, I know you know she's there. But what do you see? Because in a sense, this woman's just invisible. This woman is invisible to this man. This, this, this woman has no weight, no worth. And Jesus is here to be a friend to someone who's just utterly forgotten, utterly invisible. So Jesus, and, and so going back to James, James urges his, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, the one who was famous for being a friend with all the wrong people, Famous for crashing parties that were scandalous. Jesus was famous for interacting. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was a friend of troublemakers, of tattletales, and of those who were completely forgotten, totally invisible. See, Jesus was famous, you might even say infamous, for not playing favorites based on faces. So how in the world could his followers do that? And so James makes a statement in verse 1, and then it's in the following verses that he actually gives an example. Again, it's an example that revolves around wealth. He's already done that once in chapter 1. He's doing it here again. Verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you, sh if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
So he gives this example, a very palpable example, because wealth, I don't know, there's nothing like wealth to bring friends. Friends. Even though the people, most of the wealthy persons that I know are some of the most lonely people in the world, but the idea of the connection, of the, of the welcome, of the favoritism is right there. And he says, it's right there. And he says, if you do that, if you, if you, show, uh, if you show, play favorites according to faces, he says, you have become a judge with evil, a judge with evil heart, with evil thoughts in your heart. And so in contrast, so, what is, so first and foremost, faith forbids favoritism, okay? Faith forbids favoritism, but it doesn't stop there in the negative. He actually says, not only does faith forbid favoritism, but also faith also uh, makes friends with the frail and the forgotten. Faith makes friends with the frail and forgotten. Look there, look in the next, the next part, part here where he says in verse 5, listen my dear brothers and sisters, has not, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? So he's saying, actually, you know what? God is actually, he's actually privileged in a sense. Those who are poor in the eyes of the world, who don't have it, the small people, the unimportant people, the frail, the failing, to be those who are rich in faith. They have faith and they have a future. They, they are heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. James is saying that true faith befriends those who are frail, those who are forgotten. Now, I, I, this is such a, an important aspect here to the life of being a Christian. Jesus does not mince words. In fact, he, he, in Matthew 18, Jesus holds out, he brings a, a little child three to four or five years old, sets it in front of them and says, unless you become like this child, unless you welcome those who are, have the status, the lowly inconsequentiality, the insignificance, unless you are about the business of welcoming little ones like this, done, over. You are not getting in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't mince words. And it's so important that we see that because we are so guilty. We're so guilty. So quickly, I size people up. I evaluate people. I can give you a long list of the sort of people that I prefer. And guess what? Not surprising. They're people like me. People who have the same strengths, the same interests, the same story. And James is coming down hard saying, no, you cannot possibly have a faith in the one who was famous for being friends with all the wrong people and continue to play favorites like that. He says, instead, real faith actually befriends those who are, who are lowly, those who are inconsequential in the eyes of the world. Because Why? Just out of being nice? Because it's a good thing to do to bless them? No, because they are rich in faith. Because they are heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him. I mentioned earlier just the, the, the forced friendships that came from uh, the, 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 the time that I spent as a deacon at this church in Florida. And the riches, the faith, the prayers, the way that these women prayed for me. There was one in particular. She was not a widow, but she was a middle-aged woman. She had just gone through a terribly bitter divorce. She had a son. And Sarah and I just, you know, by, you know just for reasons I, don't, I can't even tell you, we began to reach out to her and get to know her. 
just ministered to her son. We would hang out together on Saturday mornings. He was in junior high and high school. And we, um, we got to know each other really well. And this woman's faith, as we got to know her, just I mean, completely coincidentally, this woman's faith just, just went, became a flame. I mean, it just was, it burned so brightly. And she came to a place, and even today, we, we call her our Florida mom. She is a woman who has just so ministered to us. Her faith is so much stronger than mine. And to see the riches of that, to see the persons who are often just forgotten by the world, who are cast off by the world, that God gives them a faith that is so incredibly beautiful. And it's by that forced engagement that we have in the body of Christ that we, we, we are here in the same place. We're in the same small group. We're in the same, the same uh, church events, whatever it might be. We are together. And it's through those things, through that deliberate welcoming, that we become rich with one another, through one another. Uh, the young man I mentioned earlier, ministering in the context of, with 20-somethings, and what I would, often what I would do, they'd come in and say, hey, uh, we want, uh, do you want to be in a small group? Yes, I do want to be in a small group. Okay, well, great. Well, here's the deal. If you're going to be in a small group, you have to go to that group for six months minimum, weekly. You, cannot just, can't, you can't go around and test drive small groups. You can't go find your tribe. You can't just go to one week and go, yeah, no. You have to go for a certain amount of time. I want you to commit to that. Are you, are you in? Yeah, I'm in. Are you sure you're in? I'm in. No, no, no. I mean, seriously, if you don't go for six months, I will behead you. Okay, all right? We seriously, I mean, that's, that's how you talk. That's, that was how the conversations usually went. And sure enough, they, they would go, and at first they'd come to me and be like, no, nah, this is not going to work out. It's not, my, it's not my people. It's not who I am. I need someone who can relate, I can relate to. Someone more like me. But over time, I can't tell you the number of persons. I speak one man especially. As I, I returned to, to, to Raleigh a while ago, and I met with him, and he said, you know what? You forcing me to be in that small group was one of the best things I ever did. Over the course of that six months, I realized that almost all the first impressions that I had about the other people were wrong. And he says, I went in there with a single guy, there were single girls. I was like, no, 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 and no. And it was like, after about a month or two, it was like, oh, hmm, okay. And for four or five months, it was like, well, I kind of like them. Then after a year, it was like, hey, can you give me some advice on how to ask her out for a date? Do you see how that works? True faith befriends. It is, makes friends with those who are forgotten by the world because they are rich in faith, because there's real opportunity waiting for us. Let me ask you, we're a small community. We're a small family here. Do you actually know other people in this church? Do you know their stories? Have you had them in your home? Do you know how beautiful they are? Do you know their struggles? You know, there are so many that come just weekly to our churches and they, they don't have, they, they, just, they come, they sit, and they leave, and no one knows how beautiful they are, and no one knows how brutal their lives can be as well. And here James is urging us. He's saying, look, true faith, 
True faith is that which befriends those who are forgotten. And then he, in his sort of jab here, look there in verse, um, verse, uh, verse, seven, or verse 6 and 7, he actually says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? He says, and you want to be friends with these people? Are you kidding me? So first, faith, true faith forbids favoritism. Second, it befriends the forgotten. And third, true faith finds mercy. It fulfills the law and finds mercy. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Earlier, Elena did a wonderful job of leading us in, in Jesus' summary of the law. And this love of neighbor is not simply a niceness, hey, love your neighbor. It is, a, it is an inclusivity. It is a non-discrimination of neighbor, simply anyone who is near you. That's what the Greek is, anyone nearby. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so this, is notion, this radical notion of inclusivity, of non-preferentiality, of non-favoritism. Verse 9, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now why would he pick those two commandments? Because you know what, you and I, we like, oh yeah, adultery, we all know adultery is wrong. And murder, of course, murder. But you know what? What is it like when you and I come and we sit in a pew and we smile and nod at other people and it doesn't ever pass any further? I mean, how does that not communicate that you just aren't important to me? That actually you just don't really exist for me? So I'm not going to murder you. I'm just going to pretend like you don't exist. I'm going to pretend like you're not important enough to actually ever have in my home. I'm going to pretend like you're not important enough ever to actually just go out and have coffee with. I don't want to know your story. I, don't know your, I, don't, I certainly don't want to know your struggles. And Paul, excuse me, James is pointing out here a, a, a selectivity, a dangerous hypocrisy. You, you can have your tribe and love your tribe. And he says, that is not okay. So I don't know about you or me, but I have persons in my mind who I am compassionate toward. I have no problem being compassionate toward ABC, persons who struggle with A, B, C, and D. But X, Y, and Z? No, nah, it's just, I'm not going to. They're beyond the pale of my compassion. They don't deserve my compassion. Who are those persons for you? You're really important to stop and think, you know, who, who is it? Is it a certain political party, a certain political affiliation? Is it a certain sin? Is it a certain struggle? Is there a certain skin color? What, what is it? What, who are those persons that you and I think, you know, who, who do I really struggle to have any compassion on whatsoever? And guess what? They're here in the church. You and I, that's why God's brought us here. He's brought persons with different stories, with different struggles to come into our lives and it reveals our hearts that we're really not that loving at all. And those persons are there for our good, for us to grow through them. So true faith, it forbids favoritism, it befriends the forgotten, and it fulfills the law and therefore finds mercy. This is so important. Look at verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy 
triumphs over judgment. Hear what James is saying. He says, if you do not show mercy, you will not know God's mercy. Gang, this passage scares me for us. It is impossible for Christ to welcome me and for me not to welcome others. If I am not showing mercy, not just to the people that my, my, my tribe, the people who I think should show mercy, there can't be the selectivity, as James is saying. There can't be this pick and choose of who I want to be merciful to, of who I want to be compassionate to, of who I want to welcome into my home, of who I want to welcome into my heart. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. He's calling us out of our isolation, out of our superiority, and into fellowship, into intimacy, into community, into laughter, into joy, into a vulnerability that, that at risks exposure, that risks loss of control, that risks danger and harm, and inviting us into a, a rich fellowship of persons who truly care for each other and love each other. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. I want to, make, I want to drive this home, point, this point home from Jesus. This is page, um, let's see, what page is that? It's 8, 8, 833, 833 in your, in your uh, pew Bible. It's Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has just given the Sermon on the Mount. And at the very conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, we read, Jesus, that all the, all the, uh, the, the crowds were in awe of Jesus. Why? Verse, chapter 7, verse 29, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And in response to the, the Sermon on the Mount, we have these two accounts. One, a, a man who's unclean, who's forgotten, who's forbidden, he's from the outside, and Jesus wonderfully embraces and welcomes him. And then in verse 5 of chapter 8, we have this story of a centurion. And understand the centurion is not a Jew. He's an outsider. Roman, we don't know his actual ethnic background, but he is, he's, he's a Gentile. And he comes and he, he, he asks for help. Verse 6, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? No wonder if he's asked a question. Well, I'll, I'll come and help. The centurion replies, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I'm a nobody. I'm unclean. I'm an outsider. If you knew the things I'd done, you'd know I wasn't just unclean in terms of purity laws. I'm unclean in my heart. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Listen to what he says. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And he goes on to explain. He says, I'm as a centurion. I myself, I understand the idea of authority. I tell someone, come, and he comes and go, and he goes. I understand authority, and Jesus, you have that authority. And what is Jesus' response? Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone, uh-oh, in Israel among the people of God with such great faith. Look at verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. That is outsiders, the foreigners, the nobodies. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. Who is he talking about? 
He's talking about people who assume they have the welcome of Jesus but refuse to welcome others. Who know that there's no condemnation in Christ and yet daily condemn others and have no compassion. The subjects of the kingdom, he says, will be thrown outside into the darkness. Those who exclude will one day be themselves excluded. If Jesus has welcomed us, how can we not welcome others? So I want you to hear these from the words of Jesus because what James is saying here is so powerful that true mercy, once we know it, is a mercy that we will also show. If we know it, we'll show it. And James is here, he's inviting us into the richness of the mercy of Jesus. Are you struggling to welcome others? Are there a certain person that there's no way I'm going to welcome. There's no, I'm just, I don't want to do it. I mean, left, leave me alone. I don't want to do it. I want to invite you this morning to this table. This is a table of reconciliation. It's a table of welcome. Turn with me finally, as a way of closing, turn with me finally to Luke chapter 22. Jesus is, is it's the night of his betrayal, and Jesus is, um, Jesus is with his disciples, and he, um, something that, one of the most amazing things he says um, here, and if I, I need to be able to turn and find it myself here. It's on page 905. It's Luke chapter 22, verse 14. This is astonishing. So again, this is the night of Jesus' betrayal, the night before he is uh, crucified. Verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And what's amazing about this is that the disciples are going to go on in this dinner to argue about who's the greatest. Isn't that amazing? They're going to have an argument about who's the greatest. They're going to go on and argue. Jesus is going to say to them, you know what? All of you are going to betray me. You're all going to forsake me. And they're going to be like, no, we're not. We're good. And yet Jesus is saying to these fickle, these, these glory-hungry followers, he says, I eagerly desire to eat this meal with you. This morning, if you're struggling to have compassion, if you're thinking, you know, there are certain people I just do not want to invite in my home and in my life and in my heart, Jesus wants to have this meal with you. He welcomes those who struggle, who are self-righteous, who are unfriendly, like you and me, those who play favorites. But he not just welcomes us to a meal, he welcomes us to a way of living life that imitates him. And if we reject that way, we reject his welcome. The two go hand in hand. So as we come to this meal, hear Jesus' words, these beautiful words, I have greatly desired to eat this meal with you. What, what a savior that we have. What a, what a, what a, what, 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 it's amazing that Jesus comes. He is famous because he's a nobody who welcomes nobodies. He's one who, who in every way entices, invites, encourages all the wrong people. How can we not do that? And I just long for that for Good Shepherd. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to wrestle with in your heart. Would you be willing in the next month to invite someone into your home. It doesn't have to be someone from Good Shepherd. I'd prefer it were. 
Invite someone. You know, okay, my home's off limits right now. It's a disaster. It's a nuclear waste site. Okay. Invite them out to dinner. I say, hey, will you come into lunch with me after church one Sunday? Invite them. Would you commit in the next month to welcoming someone else into your home, welcoming someone else into your heart? Would you do that? All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the riches of the welcome that we have in Jesus. We just were amazed as Jesus sat there with Simon the Pharisee, loving him, challenging him, but loving him, calling him into a life of greater mercy. We, we love that Jesus was there with this woman who struggled, Father, a sinner, someone who was seen by the community and shunned by the community as, as being as someone who was, it was just too late for her. And Father, we are amazed at how Jesus sees her and how he sees us as we are in all of our failure and all of our frailty. He sees us. And Father, I pray that you would kill the pride, the presumption, the ways that we can be kings and queens of the infallible first impression, the way that we are so quick to size people. Oh, Father, make us a people who listen, who listen, who proactively seek out and say, tell me your story. And so that as, as we learn the story, as we listen, Father, we, our criticism begins to melt and what it was replaced is a beautiful compassion and understanding as we've listened to their struggles, as we've, as we've listened to their stories, as we listen and see how they are made in your image and are beautiful. Father, may we just celebrate one another when we, when we, we, when we suffer alongside one another. May we celebrate one another, Father, please. Father, you don't, you don't make junk. Everyone here is fearfully and wondrously, marvelously made. And yet, Father, we're afraid. We're afraid of losing control. We're afraid of, 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 of who knows what might happen. So, Father, I pray that you would banish those fears and that you would just surprise us with fellowship, surprise us with intimacy. Father, give us a, a joy that is so real as we fellowship with one another. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.